Warning, true stories and science is for mature audiences only. Open minds are advised. Broadcasting from the West Coast, here's Evan Weiss. On the show today, I have Robert Yoho, and he joins me, and he's the, uh, he's the author of a very interesting book called Butchered by Healthcare. Welcome to the show, uh, Robert. How are you? I'm great. Uh, Evan, yes. congratulations on your podcast. I'm honored to be put among your heavy hitters. I particularly admire Robert Green. Oh, thank and you. And I, I spent I spent half the morning listening to your – I was hooked. Oh, it's not content light. It's content heavy. It and is. That's, it's an unusual thing in podcasts these days. So I subscribed. I don't, I don't do that very often. Oh, thank you, Robert. I'm, um, I appreciate that. You're right. It, it, this podcast is content heavy. And, uh, and, uh, and so some people appreciate that. And I think that's why uh, you subscribe. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Robert. No worries. So um, tell me what inspired you to write uh, the book uh, Butchered by Healthcare, uh, what to do about doctors, big pharma, and corrupt government ruining your health. That's, that's pretty intense. What does that mean? Well, I'm 67, and I retired two years ago after a, a career doing several different specialty fields. And I, towards, towards the end of my last uh, thing, which lasted 35 years, I was a cosmetic surgeon doing breast augmentations and liposuction and facelifts. I had two patients die within six months in my operating room. Oh, wow. And so, my God, that prompted a re-evaluation and a re-examination of my, uh, you know, what I was up to. And it was about time to retire anyway. And so I... And how, uh, how did they die? Well, one of them was another um, doctor's patient, and I was not involved with the care, right? I was, I, I, I was in the room, but I, I wasn't the operating surgeon. And uh, Evan, the details, the precise details of the problems that they had are complicated. They're, you know, both of them were subjected to autopsies. One of them had um, a, a fat embolus, which is considered an act of God and not uh, the doctor's fault. And we weren't even hassled with a lawsuit over that one. And, um, you know, the other one, you can always throw stones at the doctor no matter what happens. Cosmetic surgeons are not supposed to have fatalities, but in fact, we generally have one or two during our careers, right? So um, I was in the boxes as far as the averages go, but these things, you know, there are always lawsuits and so on and so forth. So if if anybody's interested enough, um, they can uh, they can research this online, but it's it's not really germane to our discussion, and it's it's complicated, and the issues aren't uh, uh, completely clear even to me. So, so do you get do you have two patients who who unfortunately died, and then and then what happened? Okay, so so I retired within eighteen months of that event, or maybe two years, and over that time period, I. Um, started re-examining uh, what I was doing, and I started thinking about um, medicine more critically, and I started reading about healthcare corruption. And that's how I eventually saw what I was looking at. At first, I was I just saw a lot of inconsistencies and started uh, reading about them. I started out with, you know, bioidentical hormones are kind of run down by um, the common narratives. There are these black box warnings on on uh, testosterone and estrogen and progesterone, and it didn't make any sense to me because I knew how beneficial they were because I'd prescribed those things for most of my career. And so I looked further and further, and at first I thought there was a 
can of worms I was opening, but I finally realized it was more like a dumpster full of worms. <laughs> and I mean, it's just, it's really something. It's an industry that's twice as expensive as the other first world countries. We spend 20% of our GDP on uh, healthcare. The other countries spend uh, around 10, uh, you know, Canada, um, England, France, Australia, and so on. And we, about 50% of what we do is not uh, supported by any science, and a lot of that is actually injurious to patients. And that's not academically controversial. There are plenty of papers that say exactly that. So I, I, Warren Buffett characterizes American healthcare as the tapeworm of the American industry. In other words, if we don't get it under control somehow, and it's double-digit growth, um, we are destined for the you know, financial disaster. So although there may be bigger problems now uh, in America, but healthcare is 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 just a is just a, is just a mess and i started reading about things that didn't work and and so on and so forth and i put together uh kind of a uh, a summary of the whole thing in uh 85,000 words which isn't that large a book uh and this hadn't been done before there are a lot of people that have looked at healthcare corruption and they you know, like the old Indian story, there's an Indian man with his hand on the elephant's trunk, and he thinks the elephant is a trunk, and the other Indian man has a hand on the tail, and he thinks the elephant is a tail. Well, there are there are uh, many whistleblowers that have gone after um, healthcare and had a look at it, and they've looked at different um, aspects of it, but I kind of evaluated the whole thing, and uh, edited and re-edited this thing, so I think it's understandable for patients and doctors right. alike. And, and who, who is this book for? Like when you, when you, and how were you inspired to write it, and why did you start looking into medical corruption? Well, I, I again, I, I kind of had a reevaluation of what I was doing, and I w was interested in the bioidentical hormones, and because I knew they worked, and I knew there was some forces or some narratives that were opposing that. And I started out and I had a look at that and it didn't make any sense. And I kept going on and on and on. And I finally realized that industrialized medicine has sort of taken over. And for example, um, the pharmaceutical companies have more federal prosecutor criminal settlements mm -hmm. than each year than any industry in history. I mean, it's a stunning, stunning thing. You can there's a Wikipedia page of shame about uh, the top uh, pharmaceutical company settlements over the last uh, couple of decades, and so uh, there was something going on that involved a lot of money and a lot of payoffs. And so I dove into that and looked looked more and more carefully at it, and I developed the um, understanding of essentially how our healthcare was ruined and how the doctors were had been and the whole thing had been drug away from an emphasis on patient welfare into this very control minded uh, uh, emphasis on making sales for these big corporations right, right. i mean it's and, just, in, a, it, in a way yeah. doctors almost become like drug pushers automatons right, right. and so right. so when you went to school when you went to uh uh, did, were you, did you know any of this stuff? Evan, I'm 67. So, I, I, you know, very few people understand this. I mean, there, you know, there are people who understand parts of it. But um, this book is stunning to for any doctor to go through because there are parts of it they don't get. And it, it did take me three years to put it together. But I can assure you 
there's nothing in it that wasn't sitting right out in plain view. It's all standard references and respected people talking about our situation with these various specialties and the the, the big industrial um, problems. You know, I mean, hospitals are, you know, they're at least a third of American healthcare, yeah. and they are rapacious. I mean, they these guys, most of them are nonprofits, which means they have very little oversight, and they take people's houses if they don't pay, and they, you know, it's just... It's horrible, they, it's horrible. Now, now it's horrible. As, as a patient, what can you do to protect yourself when you go into the doctor's office for a routine visit? Evan, the sad thing is that you almost need physician-level expertise to navigate the system now. And so if you're someone... You should do your best to do as much research as you can. You don't agree to things out of hand. And you want to be respectful to your doctors because they are well-trained. They have spent years at it, but you don't automatically trust anyone. And the, the best thing that has happened is since Trump's executive order, any patient can go to any doctor in the country and do a virtual visit without fear of the doctor getting censured for not doing a good faith exam on the first visit. So you can do consultations with the best people in the country if you can afford it. Now, and it's generally a, a consultation is not generally that expensive. The expensive stuff is the chemotherapy, the the surgery, the, you know, that, that sort of stuff. You can get these guys intellectual opinions. And there are people that, who know about every field and you're your local guys may not be the best best right. ones. I mean, you can't imagine how much more competitive it is at the top academic centers than it is at the ones in the middle. They they take one out of a hundred of the very best candidates. I mean, or less. I mean, it's it, they're really sharp people that that have not only have a great intellect, but they've got patient skills and interpersonal skills. You know, that are are better than yours. You know, that's right, it's, right, yeah. And how, how do you find them? Well, you got to do your research. The, the the probably one of the great sources that has happened in internationally is these patient advocacy websites. Now, they're they're all sponsored by some industrial medical medical um, uh, you know like the diseases uh, cure that big pharma. But the people on the on the sites can give you insights to rare diseases and serious problems that you that is very difficult to get elsewhere and they're volunteer they volunteer there are people on those sites that volunteer full-time to help patients navigate what's going on during the initial phases of their diagnoses and everything else so um that those are sources um i i i would recommend you become familiar with these issues that i describe and butchered by healthcare. Uh, and I've got 500 references that are available through links in my ebook and it's only four bucks and I don't, I don't make a dime on this. What do you think about uh, the COVID uh, vaccines? And do you think there's an element of corruption in that? Or do you think it's a purely angelic uh, uh, thing? Now that's a softball question if I've ever heard one. So, <laughs> okay. So, um, I was studying healthcare corruption, uh, from several years before this this whole thing developed. So I watched it through a somewhat more sophisticated lens than most people did. And when uh, and so I, I had my doubts about the, the whole thing. And I, I am not an expert about COVID, and I'm not a specific ex expert about um, the, the ins and outs and the, all the academic uh, insanity of this vaccine. 
But I am an expert on the people who make the vaccine. And I can tell you that these people are, they're, they're not to be trusted. And it's like, I, I think Nietzsche said that I'm not disappointed that you lied to me, but I am disappointed. I'm disappointed that I can never trust you again. And so, <laughs> so, so. And so we're, we're, we're really talking about like uh, Pfizer, really. No, there are several companies involved. Pfizer is a okay. fascinating example because they have uh, 50% profit margins the last five years. Now, if you know anything about business, you know that 10% profit margins is a very prosperous thing in a competitive market. But like now, the rest of healthcare it probably has 25% profit margins, with the exception of hospitals who seem to be able to cover up their their uh, their profits by building sprees and buying physician practices and other uh, semi unsavory practices. But um, but Pfizer's got this phenomenal profit margin, and they are now approaching uh, Johnson and Johnson as the biggest uh, pharmaceutical company in the world, and um, wow. so. I think that anyway, so I, I saw this through this lens and I wrote uh, blog articles a year and a half ago saying that the, the, the vaccine was a shimmer, that it wasn't uh, going to be any any help. And I think the evidence is coming out now that the stuff, uh, the, it increases the uh, survival ship for two months. And then after that, it has no effect or very little effect that it, it has no effect on younger people that is positive. It probably has a higher mortality on younger people than, uh, than, than they have with the COVID. And, you know, it just goes, it goes downhill from there. I mean, the whole thing is a, is a completely uh, crazy effort. And the worst part of it is, or maybe the best part of it is, is that we now understand the, the uh, astute observers understand how, what the iron fist inside the glove is because these people are not subtle about about this thing they're now trying to mandate vaccines for healthcare providers uh, nationwide and they're you know these people are going to get fired in texas if they don't take the vaccine well some people can't even get care if they're not vaccinated yeah. there's there's doctors i think in florida that walk 70 doctors in florida walked out of a hospital to make a stand against patients who come in unvaccinated how does the um uh, the healthcare system or the or the big pharma uh, inspire or or control so many doctors all over the country all over the world to behave in this way. Evan, you got to understand how big pharma is and how big healthcare is. Healthcare is bigger than the federal government, right? The federal government has 3.5 trillion in revenues and whatever the hell they spend, it's more than that. Um, but uh, the whole of healthcare is around four trillion. So. Uh, and big pharma worldwide is about 1.3 trillion. And these tech companies, Apple alone has a market cap of 2.5 trillion, roughly. And so these things out they're 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 bigger than the federal government now. And you're going to think I'm crazy, but they've taken over the internet. Everything you Google is a link farm that leads to an advertisement for some crazy pharmaceutical drug. And it's very hard to find the truth. Although you can't hide the truth in a thing in a uh, system as wide as the internet because all the, all the information is there. It's just harder to find what's true. So uh, it, we're facing a wall of propaganda and the doctors are just as out of it as the patients. I mean, they, they, they see this thing through the lens of their training, which says the, you know, these old, mandating these vaccines uh, from uh, yesteryear 
made some sense, right? It seemed, it makes some sense uh, because, uh, you know, the diseases were serious and the vaccines were, were, had rare problems. But this particular vaccine has thousands and thousands of fatalities associated with it. It's, it's never been the case that we've approved anything with this many fatalities. And it's not effective. It's not a real vaccine. It doesn't confer immunity, unlike the actual disease, which does. It, the disease confers a robust immunity. And, and what do you think about doctors who are canceled uh, for having an opinion that's different than the, the status quo? Well, Evan, you're probably aware of this, but um, the healthcare whistleblowers that, that come out, I'm not particularly courageous because I'm retired. And uh, the, the whistleblowers, some very impressive people have turned into healthcare whistleblowers, uh, editors of the New England Journal of Medicine and uh, editors of the British Medical Journal. But we all come out after, we all come out come out after we're retired and they can't take our jobs. But what do I think of those guys? I mean, I think they're courageous and I'm not sure what I would do if I were thrown into a situation where it was going to cost me a lot of money to whether or not I got vaccinated because I'm not going to get vaccinated if I can help it. I mean, it's an outrageous, uh, it's an outrageous idea that this thing is, you know, they're, they're, they're using these older ideas and these older vaccines to claim that this thing fits in the same category, and it just doesn't. I mean, are, the, are they even considered real vaccines? Well, I, you know, I don't think it is by the people who, who understand it. Uh, but one of the narratives that is one of the most outrageous narratives about this COVID thing is they have run down two medications that work. Now, these are hydroxychloroquine, which is an old drug, it's not very toxic, called Plaquenil, that we give daily to arthritic patients for years. And they, 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 they finally, the CDC put out a paper, finally ratifying its use in, for, co for early COVID. The other, um, the other old drug, which is cheap, is not patent, you know, it's not a, a big moneymaker anymore, is ivermectin. That's a parasite drug, which has been used very successfully all around the world, and which I've heard, uh, you know, a rumor that it helped India with this latest uh, Delta variant and kept them from having a lot of mortality. The trick with these things is to use them early, right? Now, we also have vitamin D, which we can, we've got pretty well quantified. The way vitamin D works is we have a Scandinavian study with 275,000 patients with with a much lower, it, the people with higher D levels had much lower mortality, right? So that does not prove that giving vitamin D uh, decreases mortality, but it's highly suggestive. And D is very cheap. It's not toxic either. And so you can give D. And I, I think this is something every, everyone should should take. It's not a, a, not a big deal. If you're five, if you're a 200 pound man or uh, or way more, you take 10,000 international units and 5,000 if you're under that, and you check a D level and try to get your D level up between 60 and 100. I, I forget the units, but um, statistically those... What about zinc? Have you heard about zinc? I've heard about zinc. I can't... I mean, zinc and the other one that's used as a broad-spectrum anti antibiotic called uh, Zithromax. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, the, the best reference is the uh, AAPS site. It's the American Physicians and Surgeons Association. If you just Google AAPS COVID, you'll yeah. come up with a page that will download and give you some very good uh, references. The American, American Frontline Doctors also have references on just what to do. And uh, somehow, 
the industry has managed to cover up these medications, which uh, they seem to work very avidly. And the, the consensus has come around that, that these things do work for the cardiac. Why is that, in your opinion? Well, again, we're facing, why, why have they covered it up? They're not, they can't patent it. They can't make the money off the vaccine. With the vaccine, they, ha they have a drug. You know, like we have, we have like 17% of uh, the country on, uh, on antidepressants and other psych drugs, right? This is almost a universal drug. But now we have a vaccine that's expensive and that supposedly now everybody, including pregnant women and young children, have to take, right? They've got this thing mm -hmm. that is incredibly profitable. You know, so so if you understand the way they work, and they're agnostic about um, harms, basically, their 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 question is is how much money does it make? And this is this is I mean I don't I can't think of another drug that everyone has to take that is this profitable. I mean this is the most profitable drug in history, I think, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's and what do you think about the FDA just recently approving the Pfizer vaccine as being okay. Uh, Good question. Yeah. So the FDA is almost a wholly owned subsidiary of pharma. And I can the, the reason why we know is in 2003, I think it was 2003, a law went through Congress that said that they were paid directly by two thirds of their their revenue roughly since then has been paid directly by pharma in what's called user fees. Now, a user fee is a um, is a, a fee that occurs during the patent process of a drug. So pharma started to um, regard these uh, these large corporations as uh, clients rather than entities to be regulated. And, I mean, it's an outrageous situation. Now, the FDA supposedly is still the best uh, drug regulation um, organization in the world. They keep the crappy generics more or less out of the United States and and they do watch and they do try but they're way outgunned. Pharma's got a 1.3 trillion dollar uh, gross worldwide and probably 40% of it in the US and they're a 5 billion dollar operation and half of half of their uh, money goes to regulating the food industry. So I these are numbers that you, you can't make up. I mean they're they're just too small to do anything. Um, so and they're they're bought off by uh, these user fees, and a lot of people have said this. This is not my original. And so I know in your book you said uh, you you started to use uh, Prozac as an antidepressant, and uh, and you realized that it wasn't really uh, it didn't really it was pretty much worthless. Can you tell me a little bit more? Of that? Okay, so psychiatry is another subject, and it's it's an interesting subject. And I I actually you know I bought the party line until the last five years and my most of my career i prescribed ssri class antidepressants along with uh you know for anyone that seemed like they had a depression or you know met the criteria and i believe the stories um but uh you may have heard this chemical imbalance in the brain idea about ssri antidepressants particularly prozac have you heard that right yeah well, yes. you know, that was made up in the marketing department of Smith, Klein, and Beecham. That is not a science. And that basically is laughed at by the real um, scientists. Likewise, the the business about the uh, other theories, the other chemical theories of depression, psychosis, and all that, there's, there's no evidence for any of that stuff. It's all marketing. Dopamine is the one they talk about, too. But once a bell is rung, you can't unring the bell. And so this thing is a marketing trope that is a chief currency in the general uh, vernacular for the doctors and the patients. So there, there you have it. I mean, it's it's crazy. 
psychiatry is a unique specialty, right? All the it they only treat things that cannot be demonstrated by lab test or X-ray or uh, blood test or anything. You know, they treat things without. It's essentially a soap bubble uh, deal, and they they basically have no decent trials on any of their drugs. And they're all heavily influenced by industry and their standards, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. That thing is more or less an industry Bible, right? It was put together by industry-paid doctors. So, so these these guys are prescribing medications that have not been studied with a proper control, and they're basically they're the, the increase in our psychiatric problems have. Have been, the psychiatric problems have increased in tandem with the psychiatric medication use, and also increasing in tandem is the psychiatric uh, disability. So this is thought by the observers to be causal. In other words, the drugs are the culprit. We do have one quite good control, right? We've got the third world where they can't um, they can't uh, afford the drugs. So in the third world. Um, the results are better. These entities, these schizophrenia and all these so-called bipolar and uh, depressions and everything else, they tend to wax and wane. Whereas if you put them on these addictive drugs, they become chronic because the drugs are addictive and you can, you take these drugs for five years and almost nobody gets off of them. They do brain damage. And this is literally true for the atypical antipsychotics, which are passed out promiscuously for depression now. I mean, it's it's an amazing thing. And these drugs decrease lifespan by 10 to 20 years. I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredible. Wow. I know. And the Prozac class drugs are not quite as bad as those, but they're highly addictive. If you have friends who've been on Prozac for five years, they can't get off Prozac. There's no way. The benzos, right, like uh, Xanax and Valium, they're not quite as bad, but they're highly addictive also. And you know, the original studies on Xanax showed efficacy for like three weeks, and then it showed break-even for three weeks. In the last two weeks of the study, they were worse than nothing. But the FDA was convinced, like the COVID vaccine, that the evidence was good enough to approve Xanax, and it became the best, one of the best selling drugs of all time it's a horrible drug you have rebound anxiety when you stop taking when you when you when you after three hours right you take the stuff you feel better and then three hours later you get a rebound anxiety and it's it's just it's just a crazy scene the psychiatry is a mess and the psychiatry deniers uh robert whitaker is sort of at the forefront he's a journalist i mean it takes an outsider a smart outsider to look into these studies and explain it all he wrote um, his book over 10 years ago, and everyone's been talking about it since, but uh, psychiatry is, according to Peter Gotcha, who is a Scandinavian um, researcher, he says that psychi the psychiatrists accept more money per capita than any other specialty field from big pharma. I don't know if that's true, but uh, it, it amounts to hundreds of thousands of dollars a year apiece. Why isn't anyone stopping this? <laughs> you know, Evan... <laughs> It's, we're facing a wall of propaganda, and nobody knows what's true. The Wikipedia is probably our best remaining source, but you probably are aware. Even that's even that's tainted, probably. You probably are aware that they face armies of ghostwriters right. from um, medical industry trying to revise it. So um, you 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 go on the internet to research something, and you encounter link farms that seem very credible, seem very authoritative. 
the internet is has been purchased by the medical industry. There, the, the size of the thing is incomprehensible. Robert, knowing what you know now, what would you do different if you started your practice again today? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, that's a hard <laughs> question. I mean, you know, when you're younger, you're you're. I mean, just, ima- money, just imagine a, pa- a patient you, comes you mean, in. What would be an ethical practice? Yeah, I mean, imagine a, a, patient, a patient comes in and says, you know, I've been feeling a little depressed. What do you think I should do, Doc? Well, you, you have to understand how regulated and how controlled doctors are. In every state, they have medical boards. The medical boards are run by the uh, most conventional and conservative of the physicians. And um, if you... If you work for an HMO and you do anything that's slightly different, um, they will they examine your your work statistically. If you don't uh, if you don't supply enough statin uh, cholesterol lowering medicines, for example, they can censure you or wow. even kick you out of your job. Wow. No kidding. Wow. I mean, it's wild. They, they you you're 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 certainly required to have a certain percentage of your patients on SSRI antidepressants, which in in my view have rare, rare indications, rare indications. You have to be really sick. Are you saying doctors have a quota, like a monthly or yearly qu- a quota of how many things they prescribe? It depends on who you work for. Now, if you're on your own in private practice and you encounter a lawsuit, then you get examined by the medical board and the mm-hmm. doctors there peer review you, even if you're not on a hospital staff, and they it could become a witch hunt if you are doing something that's unconventional and my ideas in this book are unconventional it's i think they're well backed by 500 references but it's not it's not conventional to say that uh, most cancer treatments are completely worthless except for so let, so let's, let's do that mental exercise again if you had a private practice and 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 someone came to your to your office and said they were they're feeling a little depressed about maybe someone passing away what would you do? Well, you have to understand that the SSRI class of antidepressants increases their chances of suicide and violence. This was understood since the very first study. It was covered up by Lilly, who invented Prozac or marketed Prozac, and was revealed in the lawsuits against Lilly. Uh, and Lilly has been, ever since, has been settling these cases quietly. They've spent I mean, as of 10 or 15 years ago, they'd spent $50 million settling uh, suicide cases. So if they were a little depressed, I mean, if you have the, I mean, I think that uh, depression and anxiety are a natural part of life and facing these things are what makes you human. And so if you think that um, after two weeks of uh, poor sleep that you should take a antidepressant uh, according to to the standards of the definition of depression as defined by the doctors who've been paid by big pharma to to write the DSM, (laughs) I mean, you, I think you're crazy. Um, So uh, there's, there, there is a place for these drugs, but I tell you there it's 5% or less of the, so you're saying that uh, essentially when people have anxiety or depression, you're supposed to feel those things and, and it's just part of being a human being and eventually it waxes and wanes and then you get better. On average. On average. Yeah. So oncology, there, there, there are, you know, 10 specialties represented in my wall of shame and my chapter headings, right? And you can, you can have a look at surgery or you can have a look at overuse of uh, uh, CPR and uh, basically CPR doesn't work, uh, or at least it doesn't work in any decent fashion. Um, you can look at billing scams and other things, but oncology is one of the most egregious 
specialties because they have a unique kind of payment, right? Over half of their net income in oncology is from retailing chemotherapy drugs. Now, just think about that for one moment. They get about 20% of, and the the drugs cost about $100,000 a year, and these guys' pay is escalated dramatically. Now, I'm not jealous of anybody's pay, but when you are paid to play, there's no way you can re- retain retain any objectivity about your patient's well-being, right? You cannot do that, and you're probably familiar with influence theory and Caldini's book right. Influence. Yeah, so any exchange of value poisons the well. That's the basic principle. And these guys are, and if 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 you and I tried to do this, and we were both doctors, and I paid you 20% of something that you were selling, Uh, that I want you to sell. And I say, look, here, you take 20%. That's called capping. It's a federal crime. We could both go to jail. But there's an exception for these corporations. They're They're allowed to give these drugs to doctors to retail. And it gets worse, Evan. They are paid by the milligram. So in other words, they're incentivized to give larger doses than might be reasonable. Now you say, well, the doctors are well-trained and of course they are. They're all trying to look out for the patients as well as their pocketbooks and they probably wouldn't do that. But we have, you know, there are many instances, there was a, there was a blood that uh, there was a blood thickening drug where it was completely clear that the drug was ineffective. It actually increased mortality in certain kinds of cancer patients. Well, these doctors were prescribing it anyway. It was common knowledge, and they, they were. It was it was well known, you know, before this sort of came out that everybody was doing it for the money. So, I mean, it's an it's a crazy specialty field because ninety five percent of it works almost not at all. It's Vignet. It's like I know oil. that's a big that's a big big claim, but look at Vignet Prasad uh, and and see what he see how he's done the statistics on it. Two months improved survival is what um, the usual cancer treatment gives you, with about five or six exceptions. We have five or six things that are curable: lymphomas, leukemia, you know, a few things like that. Um, amyloidosis uh, survival is improved what else testicular cancer lance armstrong survived that because of the chemo Uh, but the rest of it is almost futile and i mean it's it's a mess they get paid off and they're not doing anything very valuable but i would say also to put a, a cap on this discussion do not think that i'm completely condemning medicine because there are miracles everywhere half of what we do is miraculous and i i am not saying that none of it works i'm saying you should do your research and try as as hard as you can to understand what's going on and if you have to take it on the road and do your virtual consultation elsewhere what what about unnecessary surgeries Okay, so that's an interesting topic. Okay, so for example, you go in, you have a tummy ache, and they're like, "Oh, you have a couple of stones in your gallbladder. Let's do surgery." Well, you you cut to the chase on the gallbladder surgery. Um, there's a, a procedure called an endoscopic uh, gallbladder operation, and that is generally accepted to be overperformed, right? And the, the whole thing followed sort of a market pattern and went crazy as soon as the uh, this relatively safe procedure was invented. It's not totally safe, though. Um, Another example is um, cesarean sections and um, hysterectomies, right? About a third of the women having a childbirth get uh, cesarean sections, and a third of the women before they're 60 get uh, hysterectomies. 
uh, which wow, oh, it's pretty, a lot, pretty high, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and the sweet spot on um, cesarean sections for survival is probably around fifteen percent, right? So th that's been well established in other countries. That you know, cesarean has some hazard, right? And it, although it's very convenient for the gynecologist, um, it the mortality the mortality figures are probably the best when only about 15% of births are given cesareans and the, the same thing goes for all those hysterectomies it's also easiest when you do a hysterectomy to um, yard out the uh, ovaries as well which is a castration procedure which causes death due to the lack of the hormones and so the women are slammed into an immediate menopause and if they're younger it's just a disaster if unless they go on hormones and even then it's not the best thing they are often led down the path by saying that if they take out the ovaries that the lifetime chance of dying from ovarian cancer goes to zero well this is true but there's only about a one percent lifetime it's a very rare cancer and taking out the ovaries is deleterious it's harmful and mm -hmm. it causes death by cardiovascular disease. Yeah, yeah. When when you, when you manipulate hormones, it has a systemic kind of uh, effect on your whole body. That's no, right. unnecessary surgery, back pain. You you want to hear that about that? So we back pain, back pain, our back pain treatment is uh, as it's done now is almost a complete mess. I mean, it's it's almost a total failure as well. Um, it costs about $100 billion a year, but it, none of it works. I mean, the, the things that have been studied include hot packs, ultrasound, chiropractors, acupuncture, laser therapy, steroid injections, spinal surgeries, opioid painkillers, electrical stimulation, and osteopathic manipulation. But this, these don't improve pain over the long term. And the worst, in my opinion, is the, um, uh, uh, the back pain uh, surgery, which is done a lot on young, unsophisticated men who have back pain that would usually be completely self-limited and so within uh, three months or something like that um, these guys go in and they now you, you brace yourself Evan the charges to the work comp system they the bills that they I, I'm not going to tell you what do you think a bill for an afternoon of back surgery is to the work comp okay, system uh, in California $80, guess how dollars guess high wow 500 <laughs> now that's 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 where the negotiation starts. Now you know, of course, these guys would say, you know, they they never get that much money, and I'm sure sure they don't get that much money very often. Wow. But uh, and that's not every single center, but that's that's one of the things that I heard when I investigated all this. And they it takes a couple years to get paid, and <laughs> it's a negotiation process. The lawyers want a third of it, whatever it is. But the incentive is to raise the price as high as possible because the formula is basically a third for the patient, wow. a third for the doctor, and a third for the lawyer in 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 that in the work comp just like personal injury i mean it's it's crazy there, there's a guy named drobot who you can look up like robot with a d uh, in california who uh he did the biggest fraud the biggest financial fraud in california history right wow. he had he had the legislatures paid off and everything else and he was paying ten thousand dollars for a referral to do one of these back surgeries and his orthopedist i mean he's in jail yeah. i'm hoping i i haven't followed up on this but i think some of his orthopedists are looking at him on the other side of the uh, you know on the same side of the bars as him um so it's a it's a mess it's just a mess and it's just so hard for anyone to resolve financial conflicts that are that big i mean it's just if you're 
if you may, if you give enough money, you've you basically poisoned the soup for whoever it is. Right. So how, how should uh, how should the, the medical industry really? How would you envision it running in a way where is it's it's helpful to to patients actually? Well, for back surgery, there just in all in all these different uh, uh, sectors of of the medical industry. Okay. Well, I, yeah, but there are things that would work, but you got to realize what you're up against. I Big mean, money. You're, you're, yeah, you're up. You're up against a wall of money. It's not going to happen without some sort of cataclysm. It's not going to happen until the rug gets jerked out from under our whole economy. And you know, even then, the the, the big uh, corporations, I think, are going to are going to come out on top at, at our expense. So I have fixes in my book that would work if they if the if the, our our legislature could pass them. For example, as heretical as this sounds. If they would stop, if they would kill prescriptions, except for some items like opioids and maybe amphetamines, which I think I think need to be continued to be locked up, I think that people would probably not be so susceptible. It might eliminate the patent process. Killing the patent process would be very helpful for medicine. The whole thing would slow down, and the industry would not have such a lot of money to um, to go after us with. You know, so the patents are kind of the source of the evil, and it's it, this. It's a blend. It's kind of a sick blend of capitalism and um, socialism that we have here. I mean, we we pay for everybody's health care, which you know is arguably reasonable because it's so expensive. But then we blend this with these aggressive capitalists who go after every dime in any fashion that they can. So, I mean. It's it's not an easy uh, it's not an easy equation, and I think yeah. as an individual patient, you have to conquer some of this with philosophy rather than practical. You have to realize <laughs> that these these guys, these doctors, and all this nonsense, uh, uh, half of it's not useful, and that you might as well, if you can if you can figure it out, you may decide to say no right. to some of it. But that, that's actually what I was going to uh, say. Is uh, I think the primary contributing factor here is education. You mentioned earlier, like you know, the guy, uh, unsophisticated guy, goes into the office with back pain, and they just see dollar signs, right? They start salivating, like, oh, this is a really juicy, uh, good deal. And I think education is a really big part of it. the The idea that you could say also, no, I feel like people get intimidated by lab coats. They go into the doctor, and the doctors. Has a very charismatic voice and very great guy, and you want to you want to trust the doctor. You you've been raised to hey, you know this this guy wants the best for me, but in reality, it's kind of been transformed in the way where they just want the best for themselves in terms of getting paid. It's not conscious. These guys still consider themselves idealistic, and they right. they're trying. Right. No, you got to realize the doctors as patients hardly fare any better than than the patients. I mean, right. it's you know we're brainwashed too. We think it all works. No, no, that's a good point. And I think people sometimes like to blame the doctors, but the doctors are really uh, also being, uh, in a way, bamboozled by these people. They're bought off. You know, the, the second worst system is workers' compensation, right? So working, workers' compensation is, let's see if I can pull these numbers up. Um so it all gets everything in healthcare is passed through the insurance companies. First of all, almost everything. Me Medicare is administrated by uh, insurance companies and the private insurances, and so they skim or they take twenty at least twenty percent off the top for their internal profits, their executive suites, the executive salaries, and their other overhead and their marketing. I mean, it's it's a it's a system that's unlike any in the world, and it's it's pathological because 
it actually arguably encourages waste because they're not so much interested in total costs because they can pass it through. So in 2017, employers' cost for work comp was $97 billion, right? And the benefits paid were $62 billion, which is 64%. So the, the insurance companies took 60, as I understand it, the insurance companies took 64% off the top. But the, the overhead didn't stop there, right? There are other effects. Um, so <laughs> there was insurance company administration, 36%. That was, that's very high. Uh, the fraud losses were probably between a quarter and half, right? That's unique to work comp and probably uh, personal injury. And the litigation costs were at least 5 to 10%. The provider overhead costs were 10%. So the over the total overhead is, a, is at least 75%. <laughs> I mean, it's just insane. It's just crazy. It and the, I've outlined some of the overhead for the total system. And it's, it's just mind-boggling yeah. how much waste. There Do you think masks work <laughs> for COVID? Well, I'm not an expert about this, but I, I've got to tell you, here's a heuristic for you, a rule of thumb, and that is that if there are large studies and small differences, it's total bullshit, <laughs> right? So that's the story with the mass. There are, it's controversial. So you know if anything's, see, real science, and this is a, uh, this is a quote of the idea by, uh, who is that? physicist, which, who's the smartest scientist that everybody likes to read, uh, Caltech guy. He said that real science progresses through stages and it becomes more and more clear what is the truth. Well, in medical science, it typically doesn't happen. And in something like a mask uh, or, uh, you know, even vaccine efficacy, I mean, there's there's controversy. And if there is if, if there are people yelling about it from either side, you know that it's just not true. You just don't believe it because it's so hard to find out what is true. And the really true things don't, it's, they're not very controversial. <laughs> and what do you think about the idea that they're going to mandate vaccines where you can't get groceries or see the doctor or, or do any of this stuff unless you get a vaccine? Do you think, do you think big pharma is pulling the strings from way behind there? You know, Evan, I would never have guessed that th things could have come to this, but I think that's exactly what's happening. And it's a sad story that they they don't even have the good judgment to kind of be covert about it now. They're it's so just powerful. Out in the open. Yeah, it's like the tech companies and the censorship. They don't give a damn what we think because we don't have any power. Right. You know, there's no way. I mean, these companies should have all been broken up by Sherman antitrust actions and all that stuff. But we're long past that. We the, the federal prosecutors decided to accept these compromises for two decades with big pharma of billions of dollars of pay, payoffs a year to them. In other words, settlements for criminal allegations. And instead of instead of breaking up a couple of them, if they would have done that, maybe they would have, uh, you know, the, kill the chicken and scare the monkey. They would have uh, they would have uh, stood down and not been so crazy. Same thing with tech. They're bigger than we are now. They're bigger than the federal government. Um, their revenues aren't bigger, but their market caps are so big they can do whatever they want. So, I mean, maybe we should shut up. But I have to. I keep reminding myself that we are not living in Hong Kong. There's nothing on the books that says that anyone can put me in jail for what I say. And we still have a free marketplace in books and podcasts that we should. For now. For now. And we, we, we've got to do what we can. You know, we're small animals in the in the mix, but we have to do what we can. Robert Yoho, author of Butchered by Healthcare. Thank you for joining me on the show. Hey, Evan, I'm grateful for your time. 
If you made it this far, you're truly a sage. And we want to thank you for listening to True Stories in Science. Like, follow, and subscribe to support this show.